I'm always pleased to be here, pleased to see so many friends and familiar faces. I'm Mary Wood for the San Francisco Ballet Center for Dance Education. I'm delighted to be here with you in the green room of the Veterans Building in San Francisco, and of course to be with those who may be listening via podcast at a later date. I will mention that we are aware that the podcasts have not been put up on the website. We are working on that, and they really should be there very soon. So just keep going to the website, sfballet.org, and keep looking. You'll find them very soon. Welcome to this evening's Points of View program. This is Wednesday, March 27, 2013. The Points of View lecture series, as I'm sure you're aware, is produced by the Center for Dance Education, directed by Charles Chip McNeil. The Adult Education Program is administered by Adult Education Coordinator Cecilia Beam. The Center for Dance Education produces a large number of programs, including the Meet the Artist interviews that I know you're familiar with, held in the Opera House an hour before selected performances. They produce programs for children, both out in the community and in the Opera House. And then they produce a growing number of programs that are designed to further engage our already very engaged audience. As many of you know, they, these lectures and interviews are recorded, and as I said earlier, all things going well. You can go to the website where you can find them, and all sorts of other information, including information about upcoming events, and of course, casting, casting changes, programming, and it's, and, and visuals. I meant to remember to say visuals. The video is really beautiful on the website and getting better all the time. Speaking of events that um, support the ballet, I want to be sure that I mention um, our next, well, we're more than halfway through the season. Uh, this is pro, uh, Points of View Program Number 5. Program 6 on April 10th is back here right where you're comfortable right now. The following week, Program 7, we will be, as we are usually once a year, downstairs in the Herbst Theater when we have a slightly larger audience. And then I want to be sure you're aware of the uh, change that's coming. The wind has changed. And we will be moving to the Norse Theater, which is just a block or so down the street. It's The address is on Hayes. It's between Van Ness and Franklin. It's printed in lots of places. We'll be sure that you have plenty of notice before we ask you to relocate. As I'm sure you're aware, this building is about to begin its seismic update. How many years has it been? Um, <clears throat> for eight seasons now, the Center for Dance Education has presented a visiting scholar. And this is someone who is resident with us for sometimes up to a week and presents classes and lectures that deepen our knowledge and understanding, not just for you, the audience, but also for members of the staff and students in the school and members of the company. And as I said, deepen our understanding of some aspect of the ballet world. This season's visiting scholar 
is Dr. Tim Scholl. He's a scholar of Russian literature and a dance historian who's authored two volumes on the history of Russian dance, From Petipa to Balanchine, Classical Revival and the Modernization of Ballet, and Sleeping Beauty, A Legend in Progress. A professor of Russian and Comparative Literature at Oberlin College, Dr. Scholl is a specialist in 19th and 20th century ballet and holds degrees from Yale and Vanderbilt Universities in Fine Arts. His articles on dance have appeared in the New York Times and in daily papers in Moscow and Stockholm, as well as in program books for the New York City Ballet, Milan's La Scala Theater, the London, uh, London's Royal Opera House, the Paris Opera, and the Hamburg Ballet. His Sleeping Beauty, a legend in progress, was selected as an outstanding academic title by choice in 20, uh, 2005, and he's currently at work on a history of Soviet ballet. Many of you have been present this past weekend as Dr. Scholl lectured on narrative ballet, on the Ballet Russe, and on the Russian influence on American ballet. Tonight, he will zero in on Onyegin, exploring, as it says in our program notes, the way the three creators, Pushkin, Tchaikovsky, and Kranko, have reimagined characters who are not only beloved in Russia, but resonate universally for all who have experienced true love and occasionally regret. For how many of you will this be your first Onyegin? Oh, a fair number. Oh, this is going to be exciting. <clears throat> Dr. Scholl will, of course, be presenting a lecture about his, um, based on his vast depth of knowledge, but he will be entertaining questions. So I'm sure you're going to be storing them up as this goes along. Please welcome Dr. Tim Scholl. I have had such wonderful hosts here, including Mary and Cecilia Beam and uh, Carrie, who are all in the front row, and it's been um, a lot of fun. Also, the Onegin that I saw last night was spellbinding. Uh, it was fantastic, and I just have to say that. Um, I am going home tomorrow for my own seismic update, um, but it has been just delightful to be here all week, and thank you to all of you. Um, it's been a lot of fun. So Russians have a really interesting saying. They say, Pushkin nashev and it means Pushkin is our everything. And I always think about what other nationalities would say if we had to ask um, what what our everything might be. I'm not sure about us. Um, it's almost kind of biblical language, but if there is one single thing, thing that Russians all agree on, it is Pushkin. And I want to talk briefly tonight, first about the Pushkin Onyegin, and then a little bit about the Tchaikovsky 
And I'm not going to show you anything from the Kranko Onyegin because it's over there and you should see it live. So the, the, the real problem of teaching ballet at Oberlin College is that it all has to be on video. And uh, you want to be able to have people see real ballet in three dimensions. And we don't really need any of those networks right now. So that's okay. Pushkin was born on the cusp of the 19th century and died 37 years later uh, in a duel. And by the way, he had apparently fought 29 duels in his lifetime. So this is what you call playing with fate. Um, but what he did was turn the Russian language, and especially the Russian language for poetry, it, uh, from something fairly clunky into something of, uh, of rare beauty. He's the person who really transforms the literary language into a language that was uh, ever after known for its poetic beauty. The dynamism and the fluidity of Pushkin's verse was unmatched in Russian letters for the next century. And the pleiad of early 20th century Russian poets that comes closest to Pushkin's versatility, range, and his creative output were very much his students. Um, what's interesting is that in about the late 1890s, there was a Pushkin revival in Russia. They kind of rediscovered him. And so everybody is reading Pushkin, including Bloch and Akhmatova and all the great poets. When we talk about Onyegin in any version, we have to start with him. And his own biography is very deeply etched in this story. He wrote this novel in verse over the course of eight years. And these were eight years when he was in exile in the south of Russia. And he had a very uh, tendentious relationship with the Russian nobility. Uh, he was a noble himself. He was also the great-grandson of an African who had become one of um, Peter the Great's sort of favorite house servants. So Pushkin had this very kind of interesting role in the Russian literary world and the Russian social world, which is also important for us. And he was always very conscious of, and everyone else was very conscious, of his status as a kind of uh, one-quarter African. And um, when we look at Onyegin, we see how much he's etched himself into this story. So the poet Lenski is the kind of um, pure poetic soul that is the kind of creation that Pushkin, I think, wanted to be. And Onyegin is his bad side that he also was very aware of. And by the way, when we read um, Eugene Onyegin, there's a very funny thing that is timely now. Um, uh, they talk about, in this section where they talk about how he goes out, and he's always kind of the man about town and the ladies' man, they talk about his watch from Bouguet. 
And uh, I've been laughing lately because the New York Times has been running full-page ads of those watches, which are a much better Rolex um, and very expensive. And these were the things that both Pushkin and Onyegin wore. So you get a sense of, of his place and his idea of himself. The um, novel in verse he wrote is a really fascinating thing because if you ever want to set a very high bar for yourself as a poet, try writing a novel in verse. And the stanza that he created for this is called the Onegin stanza, and it's really complex. It's 14 lines. So the entire uh, work is 389 of these 14-line stanzas that have a very particular um, style and rhyme pattern. And um, the only other person who's done this really well is Vikram Seth, who lived here, and it was his first real um, literary success, and it's called The Golden Gate. And it's a lot of fun. It's a San Francisco story from about 20 years ago when, when there were yuppies. Do you remember them? Yeah. So um, after you read the James Phelan translation of Pushkin, it's F-A-L-E-N, that's the best one, uh, then do read Vikram Seth because it's a lot of fun. Pushkin is present in this story both as the figure of Eugene, the hero, but um, he's also a pretty unsympathetic one. And that's why I mentioned that Pushkin sort of wrote his bad side into the story as well. Uh, he is known ever after in Russian literature as the superfluous man. And there are lots of these. Tolstoy and Dostoevsky have a lot of these superfluous men. And it's part of um, Pushkin's own sort of societal role as someone who um, grew up noble, never really had to do anything. And these people felt themselves sort of largely lost. Um, I think if I had not to do anything, I might have a better time. But anyway... Uh, <laughs> Uh, Pushkin writes about this very well. And it, he was writing this also in exile. So it really heightened the self-identification he had, not only with this character, but also with his own kind of problematic um, juncture with Russian nobility, Russian society at the time. He was really between these two worlds, there's the social world of the 19th century Russian capital and then the ennui of the countryside. And both of these Pushkin felt very viscerally. Um, and of course, in the opera and the ballet, we have this wonderful kind of contrast of the country party, which is fun and there are peasants and everybody dances a lot. And then the society party in Act Three which is much more formal. And this is when you see the Onyegin character coming to terms with what it means to be a part of that society. His heroine, Tatiana, is a pure Russian soul. She is easily the most favored and favorite um, character 
in Russian literature. Um, she is a nice girl who read books. And by the way, the entire novel in verse is arranged around this idea of reading. So her mother, Larina, reads Richardson. Has anyone read Richardson? Yeah, okay, one person, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> because you and I are the only people who've read Richardson in the last uh, 50 years. <laughs> um, Richardson, by the way, is still a novel. Um, it's a, a, an epistolatory novel, all of his were. And, uh, and they're fantastic in the way. Uh, they're usually about uh, tortured peasant girls who have bad times with their noble um, overlords. But they're also interesting in the fact that they are um, written in letters. And it brings us to the sort of uh, main scene of Onyegin, which is about a letter. And I love the letter in Onyegin because it actually means something. And in the 18th century literature, there were lots of letters. There were purloined letters and, you know, all kinds of letters. But in this work, the letter is actually important, and we're going to look at the way that Tchaikovsky deals with this letter, because it's not just something that's in a mailbox that you worry about. It actually is something that's read and sung and danced. And one of the things I, I love about the Krenko version of this is that um, what could be worse to put on the ballet stage than someone writing a letter? And he deals with it. Yes? Okay. Okay, fine. Okay, fine. Great. Thanks. Um, so Krenko has this very interesting solution of having um, Onyegin come as a kind of spirit um, into that mirror, which is really fantastic. And it's something that um, made me realize how much Kranko knew about the 19th century ballet traditions, because that's a trick from Bournonville in Petapa. And he knew exactly what he was doing with that. And it's a, it's a perfect solution. So, this long narrative poem not only captures our attention with this tale of love and loss, but also with the ideas of young lovers at that juncture when love stories are more real to us than love itself, when dreams of love are more alive than life itself, and when novels furnish an escape to a world that's sometimes more manageable than our own. Pyotr Zhukovsky, the composer, was the first one to adapt this work for the stage. And I'm sure many of you know his versions of the opera Onyegin. It's become a standard repertory item in much the same way that Kranko's ballet is becoming kind of a standard repertory work around the world. Some purists, because they are purists, recoil at the notion of what Tchaikovsky and probably what Kranko did to this work. Um, the most notable is Nabokov, um, who is a lot of 
fun to read on this. He said it was a vile work. Um, but Tchaikovsky, at least, is very remarkably faithful to the Pushkin text. And I want to read you a little bit of um, one of my favorite writers on opera, uh, Catherine Clément, writing about the Tchaikovsky. She is a fantastic French psychoanalyst, literary critic, and she says, Silver birches, warm twilight. It is summer on the Russian plain. This is certainly the only opera that starts with preserves. This jam. How could anyone imagine it is the key to Eugene Onegin? And it's a funny, um, you know, she's obviously trying to be provocative, but I, I love her take on this because she sees the whole opera version of Onegin as being something about domesticity and about mothers and their daughters and how these traditions are observed. And so you and I who've read Richardson uh, know that it was kind of old-fashioned already by the time Tatiana was reading, and Tatiana's reading uh, more lurid things in French. And so there is a story there as well about uh, sort of the generations passing. But... Um, Larana, the mother, is still talking about making jam and thinking about her own youth. And so much of this work is about the idea of um, recollecting our youth or participating in it, and we see that um, everywhere. Now, I mentioned that one of the strange things about this work is that in any version, you have a very strange... Um, sort of central moment, which is about writing a letter. And again, it's not something you normally want to put on the stage. So I wanted to sort of show today the way that Tchaikovsky is dealing with this. And I'm not going to show you any dance because you're going to see that later, and it's better to see it live. But um, think about the sort of uh, directorial problems that are involved when we're having as a moment letter writing. So uh, I'm going to show you first Mirella Freni, who used to sing often here and is considered one of the great operatic Tatianas. And uh, we'll think a little bit about how you do this as an opera and as a ballet.
it's very nice to have someone singing that letter, but what if they have to dance that letter? And that is one of the wonderful things about Cranko, is they figured out this really, um, I think, brilliant solution about having that danced letter scene, which is so central to the opera, understandable. And I, I had the great pleasure of talking to the ballet students yesterday and said, so did you understand it? And they said, yeah, it made sense. And I was really happy about that. Um, I'm going to show you in a second um, another version of this opera, the final scene, which is also really central to um, understanding Onegin in any version. And it's by Dmitry Chernyakov, who's a kind of wild rebel who's working in um, a lot of theaters around the world these days. And um, in his version, Tatiana just kind of runs around madly, hitting the walls. She doesn't write anything at all. She just sings the whole thing, and it's kind of brilliant. It was so outrageous that Galina Vishnevska, the great soprano, said she would never step foot in the Bolshoi Theater again after he worked there. Um, the other thing I do want to mention, though, about this version of Kranko Zanyegin is that it has a very interesting score. And the score uh, was the creation of um, people who were working in Stuttgart with Kranko at the time. And fortunately, Cranko had a great artistic director who understood what Cranko could do. And by the way, I think this is by far Cranko's greatest ballet and really a fantastic work. Um, but he had a composer named Kurt Heinze Stolze who said, we're not going to use that opera. And it's really brave. And the first time I saw this work, it made me think all the time about, like, you know, the letter scene and what Tatiana should be singing or dancing to. And Stolze said no. So he took a lot of works from Francesca de Rimini. He took works from uh, the Seasons, the piano score. And he arranged them for this ballet. And the result is kind of phenomenal. Um, last night... So the third time I saw this work, I totally forgot about the opera. And I was so engaged with the score of this music. It's really fantastic. Um, I want to look briefly at the final scene in the opera. And uh, for those of you who've seen this already or who haven't, it's sort of instructive. And this is the Chernikov version of the opera, the, the new one and the one that's considered a little bit radical. Um, if you can believe it, this work always revolves around the sort of country party and then the ball in Imperial St. Petersburg. And um, he's a bit of a rebel, so he has the ball in St. Petersburg around a table, and people just drink shots of vodka. And it's kind of brilliant, actually. Um, he's poking fun, of course, at the kind of Soviet bourgeoisie. Um, but I'll show you a little bit of his final scene. So 
So we start out with uh, Prince Grimm and, and Tatiana, of course.
When I talked to the ballet students yesterday, they were very clear about who Onegin was, and their idea about him was not so far from Chernikov's, where he's kind of a mafia guy uh, who comes in with uh, an even number of flowers, which you would never do in Russia. So he's a, you know, he's a bit of a hack, um, and Chernikov, of course, picks up on that. There are many versions of this work that are now on the stage. Uh, this is one of my favorites because it's a bit provocative and fun. Um, but Kranko's is also uh, definitely a favorite. And I've confessed to many of you before that I'm not a fan of narrative works because I grew up in a very different kind of ballet tradition. Um, but I was here the other night with another Pushkinist, another Russian specialist, and we were sort of both on the edge of our seats trying to imagine how Kranko was going to do the impossible with some of these scenes that you can't imagine danced or even staged. And every turn, we were delighted and happy to see how he had so beautifully imagined how to put a very strange novel in verse that's wonderful and beautiful, but um, not something that you would think about staging. And he had done it beautifully, and it's been so much fun, and I can't wait to see it again tonight. Thank you. And yes, I will be happy to take any questions you might have. Mary. This is a couple of years ago, and it's from the Bolshoi, and this recording is from the uh, Théâtre du Châtelet in, in Paris. Yeah. Yeah, no, um, the... Uh, sorry, the, you know, the Tchaikovsky is from what, 1887, but um, uh, this new staging came around a few years later, uh, still in time for Vishnevska to be very upset by it. She had been a, you know, kind of legendary Tatiana, so she had an investment in this work. Oh, I'm sorry, yes. Uh, uh, Mary would ask me when this was done, and I think that the year is 2008, and it was done first in the Bolshoi, and then the recording I have is from Théâtre de Châtelet in Paris. Yes, in the back, I see you. Well, they're all in their 20s. And that's... Um, no, no, Prince Gremin is much older. And, he, well, by the time she's with him in Petersburg, she's in her 30s, and he's in his 60s. And that's one of the other tensions. Um, so Gremin doesn't really play a big role with Kranko. Uh, Choreographers never want to put old people on the stage <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> but with Tchaikovsky it is. 
And in the opera, he strides in, and he, guess what? He's a bass, right? And he does the Tatiana, right? It's that aria. So um, uh, it's very, it's sort of very pointed in the opera that Tatiana has ended up with this old rich guy and a noble. Yes, Carrie. <laughs> well, um, yes, uh, uh, Carrie just asked about dueling in Russian literature. And uh, for those of us who teach Russian literature, it's kind of this cliche that we always have to talk about. Um, and um, in Onyegin, it's very interesting because Pushkin, who had been through quite a few duels already by the time that he wrote Onyegin. And the duel is, of course, central because he kills off, you know, the favored character, right? Onyegin isn't so sympathetic, but Lenski is this pure soul. So um, the duel in Onyegin goes bad. And there's a problem about the second that you always have that's supposed to carry your guns. And if you look at that duel in Onyegin, it's um, very strange. And Pushkin is obviously referencing um, the fact that Onyegin wasn't taking it seriously. And he implicates Onyegin in that respect. Um, of course, that's a little harder to do in the ballet. But um, those of us who teach Russian literature sort of have to know these traditions. I could have a duel myself. I know how to do it, but I won't. So. Yes. Well, um, my, my colleague and I were laughing about all the birch trees. Um, that's terribly important. I think the main theme here is the one about the country life versus the court and the imperial life. And that's certainly something that Cranko plays up as well with that second act versus the third act. So the idea of a kind of nice country party where people get a little tipsy and, you know, uh, dance in a, a, a Russian style as opposed to the, 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 the imperial scene where everyone has to be proper. And by the way, one of the things that's funny about the Russian language is that uh, the word for dancing is tansivats, which is obviously a calc from French. And that's used when you're doing court dancing or when you're doing ballroom dancing or whatever. When you're doing kind of real Russian dancing, there's a different verb for that. And so... Um, one of the things that's going on here is that that's very highly felt in this work as well. So I think that's, um, you know, it's a dance work. But um, Kranko was so brilliant. And when I was here with my friend, we said, okay, uh, this is a really talky novel that you would never think about staging. But it's so invested in the idea of dancing. And that's what makes it a great work for the ballet. Yes. Um, 
What happens to Olga? Um, gosh, she's so nice. <laughs> and it's really interesting because um, uh, nothing happens to Olga. In Pushkin, she's forgotten as soon as Lenski dies. And it's interesting in this version that she's really kind of the main character uh, until Tatiana really comes to know Onyegin. And so Kranko obviously liked her. And, you know, again, she's a really nice girl. Everybody likes Olga. Uh, there's a wonderful line from the opera where she says, you know, I don't read books, I just have fun. Right. And, um, but it, it, it's interesting. And again, you have to remember that Pushkin wrote this over eight years. And you can see his interest with some of these characters at the beginning that drops at the end. And she disappears. So we hope she had a nice life and met a nice guy in the country. Yes? Uh, yes, okay, there are two fantastic translations. One is by Charles Johnston that came out in the 80s. And that's the one that Vikram Seth based The Golden Gate on. And uh, my colleague who's a Pushkinist always tells me that he's really sorry that Vikram Seth didn't read James Phelan's translation because it's better. And James Phelan is spelled F-A-L-E-N. And it's out from the Oxford uh, University Press, and it's really great. Um, and this has always been a problem with, with Onyegin of, uh, do you translate the verse or not? And both of those guys have done it really beautifully. So um, the problem for those of us who teach Russian literature to students who read only English is always these translations. And so finally we have really terrific translations of Onyegin that sing and they pull you along and they bring you into the rhythm of, of the original text. So it's great. But read read Phelan. Yes? Oh, that's a great question. Why was Pushkin in 29 duels? Um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, you know, and it, it wasn't only part of Russian life at the time. It was part of the, the, the life of, of an aristocrat. And so there's the wonderful scene in the ballet where you see Lenski throwing down his gloves. He's throwing down the gauntlet, literally. And uh, as a gentleman, you can't refuse that. You're already obliged. And um, when I talk about Pushkin, I mean, you know, he was a bad boy. He was exiled. And he was very Onegin-esque in the way that he lived his life. And uh, part of being a bad boy is getting into trouble probably late at night with someone else's girlfriend uh, a bit drunk. And there are so many aspects of, of Pushkin that are written into Onyegin, including the duels. So um, it wasn't the usual practice that people would be involved in almost 30 duels and die in one. But Pushkin did, and he was always sort of on the edge 
in that regard. Um, did I mention that he did die in a duel? Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> and you weren't supposed to die in a duel. You know, people were supposed to hit high or low. And so these deaths that occurred were almost accidental, and that's the way we should read Linsky's in the ballet as well, um, that uh, it wasn't really supposed to kill you, which is why I guess you could do lots of them. So, yes? It was always, uh, was he defending his wife? Yes, it was always about honor and these notions of honor that aristocrats had at the time. Absolutely. Yes? Um, you're talking about Tatiana and Olga? No, no. Oh, her husband. Okay, so Olga and Lensky. No, not that Oh, Tatiana and her husband, Gremen, yeah. Um, yeah, it's written. Mm-hmm. Um, pretty much the same. So she, um, you know, the question is, what about Tatiana and Gremen, her husband, in the third act of the ballet and at the end of the opera and the poem? And uh, the thing about her is that she is very much honor-bound. She's married this guy. It's never clear that she actually really loves him. And so that's why we get this interesting kind of pull when Onegin shows up because she did love him. And uh, she says in the poem, uh, I love you. So there's a real tension there about Tatiana and uh, the idea of this husband she has who's obviously you know, a great provider. And um, we get back to this idea of honor. You know, and uh, Onegin kills his best friend because he's sort of honor-bound in a duel. And then there she is, also honor-bound, married to this guy. Um, And she doesn't say she doesn't love him, but she does say that she loves Onegin when he shows up. So it's a really interesting issue. Yes? Um, I have to say last night was absolutely stunning. Um, You know, the other performances were terrific and wonderful, but um, last night's Tatiana was just fantastic. And um, uh, my friend who was here with me was coming to the ballet for the first time in her life. And I said, well, not a bad start. (laughs)
Thank you so much. Enjoy the ballet.